Well, welcome to the Price Talk Podcast. It's uh, Wednesday, December 28th of 2022. We are ending the year right, starting the new year right. We have Dr. Ralph Yeager on, and today we're going to talk about ATP. Dr. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us here at the end of the year. I've uh, been very excited to do this. Before we started, I wanted to let you know that we have actually, I dug into our blog, we have cited your articles and your papers and your research studies at least in 35 different blog posts on our site. So we'd like to first thank you for the impact you've had on the sports nutrition industry. You've done a, a tremendous amount of things here. And uh, and so I'd like to have you introduce yourself and then let's like let's make this the, the, the ATP podcast and kind of talk about that. But Note that there's so many things that you know. We'd love, probably love to, to do this more often or anytime you publish a study, there's an open door here. So so thanks for joining us. Uh, please introduce yourself. Uh, thank you for having me and uh, thank you for, for discussing the studies that we've done in the past. I'm really excited about that. Uh, basically, I've conducted numerous clinical studies and published peer-reviewed scientific papers and industry publications, also mainstream articles, uh, mainly in the area of sports nutrition, but also in brain, joint, heart, and, and gut health. And uh, that includes several studies on ATP. So I've been uh, a postdoctoral scholar in bioorganic chemistry at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. And I've originally earned my PhD in chemistry from the University of Bonn. Uh, after uh, spending too much time in, in college, I started my career actually in a, in a lab. And my job was actually to uh, develop new bioactive ingredients, uh, mainly for sports nutrition. Actually, my very first task was to come up with something better than creatine monohydrate and actually uh, stabilizing creatine and liquid. And I failed miserably in both, but uh, got lucky on a couple other things. So uh, after uh, spending time in, in, in R&D, I switched sides to marketing and sales and uh, actually uh, played that role for a little bit. And then in 2007, I founded the, with a partner in Crenovo, which is a technical consulting company. And we uh, uh, do mainly technical uh, review of ingredients help companies to better understand what the ingredient does and then actually add the needed science to it. So we run between 10 to 20 clinical studies every year. Excellent. Thanks. So um, given, so you, you have a lot of different expertises. <laughs> so I, today we're going to, we're going to zoom in on ATP. So can you kind of explain to us what is ATP for the, for the rookies out there listening and why it's important and, um, and potentially like some issues that that we could have if we're too low, or what may happen when we're when we're training. We have you know this is a very sports nutrition heavy podcast, so we're interested in mostly performance, recovery, and, and generally not being weak. <laughs> All right. So uh, ATP is short for adenosine five triphosphate. And that actually is our body's universal energy currency, which uh, drives all biological reactions that allow cells to function, actually life to exist. And all living cells actually use ATP for energy. But ATP is not only used to power cellular uh, processes, it's an important signaling molecule too, and specifically in neurotransmission, muscle contraction, which always is important for sports and, and cardiac function. ATP is also fundamental uh, to exercise. So the demand for ATP increases dramatically during exercise. And as a result, the availability, so how much ATP we have available can limit uh, your performance. So our bodies can make ATP themselves, right? Like it, creatine is very involved. That, that's correct. Yeah, so, so basically ATP is the, the energy molecule. And in the beginning during high intensity exercise, you're actually using up the energy storage that you have in form of ATP. 
And then at a certain point of time, actually creatine and phosphocreatine kick in to that cycle. So we actually have creatine that the, uh, becomes phosphocreatine. And then uh, if ATP uh, releases energy, ATP is a triphosphate, becomes a diphosphate. And now the diphosphate needs to get its phosphate back to actually be able to release energy again. And it gets that from the creatine phosphocreatine cycle. So phosphocreatine transfers the phosphate to ADP to become ATP again. So that's the, the, the cycle. So in general, the more ATP I have, basically the larger my stores are, the longer I actually can do high intensity exercise. Right, and that was about what I was going to ask: is where where is the ATP stored? Like, let's say if I'm coming into a workout fasted in the morning, for instance, what, yeah, where is the ATP at, and how um, how quickly can I re, like recreate more? Is that talk about that? Basically, ATP powers everything that we do. So ATP is present in every cell that we have. And when we're doing high intensity exercise, actually, usually we run out of ATP stores in eight to nine seconds. So at that point, basically, you're depleting them. And that's basically when creatine kicks in and helps you to uh, resynthesize uh, ATP. So that's why creatine is so highly effective. And in, in, in the beginning, when, when it became popular in the 92 Olympics, actually, in 100-meter dash, because if you're sprinting for roughly 10 seconds, you're just dropping off at the end. So therefore, having more creatine in your system, allowing you to resynthesize ATP, gives you the additional boost to actually finish strong in the 100-meter Right. And does it make sense? Like we don't see creatine as many pre-workouts anymore. Does it make sense to, would you, would you have creatine in a pre-workout supplement then, or are you just trying to maintain creatine saturation so that it's available for your body when you need it? Basically the way creatine works actually is that you are loading your muscles with creatine and that happens over time. So you have to take uh, other small doses over long periods of time or, or higher doses for small periods of time to increase your muscular uh, creatine store. So having creatine in the pre-workout is fine. If that is your source of creatine for the day, you're just going to make sure that you take creatine on a daily basis to, to get your creatine stores up. And that's gotcha. also and then, so the, Keep going, sorry. So that's one of the big differences with, with ATP. So ATP actually works acutely. Most of the ingredients that we have in, in sports nutrition, creatine and beta-alanine, you have to supplement them for a while to increase your stores. And we only have a few ingredients that actually work acutely, like... You take them for one time and you see a performance benefits and, and ATP is one of them. And the other one would be caffeine. Mm -hmm. So, so that, and that's what I was going to ask. Like we're doing a kind of a workaround with the creatine in a way. And it's, it's obviously has a ton of different benefits that we've covered and everything uh, in the past, but with ATP. So yeah, that, that leads us to believe like, why not just take ATP exogenously? And it doesn't seem like a lot of people are talking about that enough. So that's what I want to kind of get into today. So can you tell us more about like, yeah, exogenous ATP supplementation. So basically, the benefits of, of supplementing with ATP is on one hand, you're increasing your ATP stores. We did a study where we had athletes do repeated sprints, cycling sprints. They had to do 10, six, six second sprints with the 45 seconds of rest in between. And what happens is that the, the bout number eight, nine, 10, you see a decrease in performance because they just simply ran out of energy. And if you actually supplement with ATP, you can stabilize the performance. So you don't see the drop in performance in the later exercise bouts. And when we took actually blood samples, we could actually show that the ATP stores were maintained when you're supplementing actually with ATP. When it comes to the mechanism of, of action of ATP, on one side, you're increasing blood flow to the exercising muscle. So when I'm working out, Actually, uh, 60 to 70% of the blood that we have in our GI tract goes to your muscle 
and it provides the muscle with oxygen and with nutrients and also moves uh, uh, side products that, are, that, that actually are harmful. So therefore, increasing blood flow to the exercising muscle is crucial for performance. And that's one fact that ATP has. It improves blood flow to the, the muscle. The second one, as I just said, is basically the prevention of the declines of uh, ATP stores. So supplementing with ATP helps us to prevent those declines. And the, the third, what I think is the, the me major mechanism uh, uh, is also that it increases uh, calcium release. So therefore it helps us with contractability. Okay, cool. So so in general, it seems like you're, you're talking more about, and so peak ATP is the exogenous ATP uh, supplement sold by the TSI group. And a lot of these studies you, you show are um, 400 milligrams where you can maintain your ATP I guess, uh, levels throughout workout longer and everything. Someone who listened to this podcast is probably going to ask, well, why can't, can I just like take 10 grams of ATP and like go to super physiological levels of ATP? Or is that not really how it works? Like that's kind of a, a, a lot of our users are going to want a mega dose. Uh, I, I highly doubt that you see any benefits other than depleting your bank account because ATP is, is rapidly metabolized. So if you're, if you're taking too much, it just basically be used by the body for other things. And the, the uniqueness about the, the peak ATP is that that actually is a disodium salt of ATP. And when you're looking at the, the chemistry, and I as a chemist love to do those kind of things. So the disodium salt is the most stable form compared to a potassium salt or magnesium or things like that. So disodium is the, is the best form of ATP that's out there. And peak ATP is the, the the product that we actually used in our studies. Right. Okay. So when you when you mentioned stable, do you mean like it won't degrade within the capsule, for instance, or correct? Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. So talk about like limitations of ATP. You're talking about how bouts of eight seconds is usually where you start to run out of it if you're if you're not using peak ATP, um, and if you take too much of it, you'll metabolize it. But if you took just enough, like you take your four hundred standard four hundred milligram dosage. What is the limitation of that dosage? How long will you see benefits for? Is there a point where your body metabolizes out that peak ATP and you no longer see that benefit? Is this a daily dosage or how often should you be using this for best results? We basically look at two different things. One is acutely. So just a one-time dose of 400 milligrams and then that we see significant improvement in performance with that. The other studies we have done actually is up to 12-week supplementation. So we did an eight-week periodized resistance training program and then follow that with a two-week uh, overreaching cycle and two weeks of, of tapering where we reduced uh, the workload wow. again. And uh, basically what you see there is uh, compared to just work out alone, you can double the increases in lean body mass and double the increases in strength and also significantly increase power. And then when you go through in the overreaching cycle, you obviously uh, we're training them too hard. And as a consequence, their performance declines again. And if you're actually uh, uh, using ATP during that period of time, you can prevent some of the decline that you see from just overtraining alone. And you can see a reduction in, in muscle damage in, in that study. So therefore, we have data after 12 weeks, supplementation with, with training and, and the overreaching and, and all the fun stuff that we, that we do. That's incredible. We rarely see studies where there's legitimate programming periodization in the actual study. So that's, that's really nice. Mike, did you have a question? I'm sorry. Yeah, so so you mentioned blood flow, and that's so as we were researching disodium ATP, peak ATP, everything. One of the bigger like surprises was that it actually works mechanistically through improved blood flow. Like I had always just assumed because it's peak ATP, 
Um, it, it's an ATP molecule that it's just going to provide you more ATP and that's being used as energy. But it, it, as we went through the mechanisms, the, it, the blood flow play um, seems to be actually more important. So we, we kind of, I want to, I want to touch on that, but does that, my first question is like, is that when you, when you mentioned it's a signaling molecule, is it signaling for, uh, for like a nitric oxide release that increases blood flow or how is that really working uh, mechanistically? And then the second thing is I, I kind of pointed out is that it made me, it made me realize that we needed more stimulant free pre-workout supplements that, you know, these pump supplements that work on blood flow to use peak ATP. Cause I think too many people just think it's extracellular uh, energy as opposed to really a blood flow agent. So that's kind of like one of the things I wanted to like strongly address here. So if you wouldn't mind going through that mechanism, uh, I'd appreciate it and talk like about the signaling versus like if it's a physical kind of thing. So, so ATP is involved in, in, in nitric oxide signaling. So it basically, it, it's an effect of, of, of NL. And the other thing I wanted to point out when we're talking about blood flow, obviously you mentioned already how important that is. And, and we actually just finished a couple of studies in uh, an older population. So not your 20 year old college kid that his body works usually pretty good, but if you're getting older, you, you run into a lot of issues. And, and, and one obviously is that we have the age-related muscle loss, sarcopenia that, that we have. And uh, from the latest studies that we actually done, we see a very important effect of blood flow when we're trying to actually stimulate muscle protein synthesis in an elder, uh, not elderly, but an older athlete. So therefore, specifically with people that are not 20 anymore, but they are 40, 50, actually the blood flow becomes an even more important issue than, than, than a young athlete. Are those studies published yet? Or is this upcoming? Not yet. Writing it up okay. right now. Well, yeah, please contact us, as, uh, contact us when we can share them. Okay, so the ATP is, um, so if it's it's working through it's it's working through it seems a nitric oxide release. Is this going to be let's say like citrulline is our standard nitric oxide booster in most pre-workout supplements? For instance, is there going to be an overlap overlap of the mechanism here, or if we stack them together, should we theoretically get um, additive results? Do you believe? We haven't done a study yet, so therefore my right. clear answer to that one is I don't know. Okay. Uh, I would love to do a study basically where we just combine them and see we have different uh, or added, added benefits to that. But it is, it, it is a different mechanism in general, though? Like, I mean, obviously, citrulline is working through our, uh, arginine. How is the ATP really telling your body to, to improve nitric oxide production? The, the signaling behind us yeah, is different. They're, they're, they basically have the pretty much the same kind of overall mechanism that the nitric oxide release. Uh, so, so therefore they they work in a similar fashion. I would would say so. Therefore, at that point, when whenever ingredients work similar, it would be interesting to see basically and on how they uh, actually work together. If there's an added benefit or there's no added benefit, I think one of, again the, the biggest differences between ATP. And, and citrulline and arginine actually is the, the dose that you need. So 400 milligrams of ATP is sufficient. When it comes to arginine and, and, and citrulline, we're talking about grams, like the, the six to seven to eight grams uh, that, that we actually need for that. Have have you, uh, I apologize, but like it, in terms of pump, uh, there's a few different ways to quantify it, but have you quantified like, you know, a difference in, in serum arginine or difference in, in nitric oxide? Usually like we can kind of quantitatively compare like a nitrosgene, an arginine, a citrulline, a nitrate. Um, but the, the amount of pump produced by PKTP, while it is probably kind of parallel of the goal, have you guys 
attempted to quantify the amount of pump that comes along with it, would you like, would you say that is a pump ingredient or are you looking at it as more of a performance ingredient overall? I definitely think it's a pump ingredient too, because we directly measured blood flow to the muscle. So it does exactly what we would like to see from a pump ingredient. Yeah. But we haven't basically compared them head to head to basically see yeah. if one actually works better than the other. And I, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, muscle biopsies. And actually, uh, if you actually have, have seen that and see a, like a person on, on rest and the person actually you just uh, lift a little bit of weight and see the amount of blood that is coming out of your uh, little sample that she took out of there. It always amazes me that, that basically if you just take out like a, a normal sample at rest and basically it looks like a, a piece of meat that you buy at your meat counter. But if you're actually pulling it uh, right after the exercise, there's really blood flowing out of it. And uh, yeah, you will, you will never forget that that and basically how, how important the whole thing is for, for exercise. How, hmm. how much of a sample are you pulling on one of those biopsies? That sounds painful. <laughs> it's like, little tiny tiny little sample like this <laughs> okay yeah, I, was, I thought it was like a pencil eraser or so yeah, core sample. Uh, so uh, that's awesome I, I don't even think we need to like compete against citrulline like you know citrulline nitrosagene are, are two of the main ingredients but they're oftentimes paired together i know that ben um we just had an article on, an, on a supplement called true Knox that had peak atp alongside nitrosagene so i i don't know i i don't think they're really competitive but i what i love about the pktp dose is that it fits in a capsule and you can fit other stuff within the, even the same capsule you could even have a one cap product you know a lot of the 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 stimulant free pre-workout pills are getting into the six capsule range and everything like that but you could have a legitimate dose with with like clinically validation clinical validation at one capsule which i think is is kind of awesome um so that's that's exciting i'm not sure if you've ever tinkered with any other doses but 400 milligrams is pretty it's nice to see that we did one dose ranging study where we basically looked at the acute model and then they should look at 400 milligrams, 200 and 100 milligrams. And the, the outcome of that was that 400 milligrams actually is more beneficial than, than 200 and 100. So therefore, uh, going lower than 400, that, that's something I wouldn't recommend, at least acutely. That's basically where we see the, the sweet spot. One of the things that I like about PKTP is that it, it provides enough of a pump, but there there's always kind of this, um, well, like Mike is a swimmer. And, and you don't want to give Mike a whole bunch of citrulline before a long swimming bout because his arms will pump up and it'll become uncomfortable to, you know, continue training long term. But PKTP delivers blood flow in like a in an efficacious way. Like it's it's, it's delivering help to the muscle, but I'm not over encumbering the muscle like to the point where you can't contract it anymore. So it, it ends up fitting into a lot of different areas. Like we, we call it a, a pump product. But, you know, if you take eight grams of citrulline and nitrosgene and nitrates and all that stuff, you know, a few sets into your workout you really can't contract your biceps anymore or anything like that. And I know that's something that Mike has talked about a few times. He has to be careful as an endurance athlete with what kind of product he takes because too much pump can really ruin that for him. PKTP kind of really fits into that area. Uh, I agree. That's actually a perfect description of, of, of the benefits of the product. And the one thing also I wanted to mention from our study basically is that just taking ATP alone, you don't see the increase in blood flow. But if you then exercise then you see an improvement of the naturally occurring increase in blood flow. So that's a big safety uh, issue too, basically. You don't want to increase blood flow just from taking a supplement. You want to make sure that actually you increase the blood flow at the right time for the right means. And it won't drop blood pressure too much as well. It's kind of, that's what a lot of people are concerned with, like nitrates, is they have a pretty measurable drop in blood pressure uh, for a lot of people. Uh, but PKTP, I've never seen any sort of, uh, you know, lightheadedness or a drop in blood pressure, at least that I've seen. Yep. Um, 
Mike, did you have a question? You looked like you had something. No, yeah, we had meant, we were talking about biopsy, uh, the muscle biopsy, and, and I had something that I wanted to to bring up, but I I forgot. So that, that I thought that was an, an interesting point. Um, talking about working on the, uh, working on the exercised athletes. I, I I know that you you know you obviously you haven't performed all these studies. I I do think that there is one, um, where. In your summary, you have a you have a kind of a review article posted, I think in 2021 or so. And there's a couple studies that talk about increasing recovery and reducing pain. Could you are you familiar with any of the like the pain reduction stuff that there is? Or can you talk about that? I know like you know, we get into touchy things when we talk about painkillers, obviously, in our society and everything, but um were we talking about like muscle pain or joint pain, or like can you go into that a little bit more? talking mainly about muscle pain so the one thing we basically see is the reduction in muscle damage so as a consequence you have less soreness and soreness basically is defined as pain in that context but there's also a study in non-athletes and basically they looked at the effects of atp supplementation during uh, knee replacement surgery so they basically had people that went through the surgery and then they basically saw that by supplementing with atp uh, first of all the people recovered faster and they actually were able to uh, improve their performance after surgery faster than without ATP. And they also reported way less pain while using ATP. And actually it's one of the historic applications of ATP. Uh, in France, for example, ATP is used uh, uh, helping people with lower back pain. So the mechanism behind basically the pain reduction is on one hand, basically the reduction of, of muscle damage. But on the other hand, again, it's it's blood flow. So basically, by improving blood flow to painful areas, you are helping with the pain management. So with the knee, uh, with the knee surgeries, that wasn't even related to like doing the physical therapy or anything. It was kind of just helping with the injury and the surgery itself. Do you know? Correct. So basically, just basically asking right after after surgery, basically what what the pain levels are after surgery before you actually go into the active recovery phase where you basically try to build up muscle again and those kind of things. Okay. So if you, if you personally had an injury working out, it seems like peak ATP is something that you'd want to begin taking if you weren't already taking it alongside of potentially some other, other, maybe other anti-inflammatories or other pain relievers, like maybe a curcumin or something. Um, the ATP can increase the blood flow and your body is already working to send, send the, the restorative agents into the, into the site. But right. I'm thinking, and I, I now I'm, I'm going off into into La La Land where there's probably no studies or anything. But I'm thinking, like, if I'm formulating cer- certain joint supplements are made out there that help with just like daily daily use. But then there's some joint supplements where they, like, there's an implication, like you just messed yourself up, and like this is going to be 30 days of try to try to heal the pain a little bit. Um, and it seems like that kind of supplement, PKTP, would be very beneficial. But no one's talking about it in that context, maybe because they're I mean, we got to be careful of the claims and everything, but at the same time, I want blood flow to the messed up areas. Like, and so it seems like it's, there's a decent application here. Exactly. And then coming back to basically the, the rehab after, after an injury as an athlete or going through surgery is basically the more muscle mass I can maintain, the faster I actually can rebuild you. So therefore, if I can prevent muscle damage, and then obviously ATP did this in the overreaching cycle of our study, and HMB is another great ingredient that actually is used a lot in that segment where you're basically preventing muscle protein breakdown. And if you prevent some of the breakdown, you basically don't drop that far. So it's easier to get back to where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was HMB used in that study alongside that or was it, was it just PKTP? 
And that specific study was just ATP. There is a training study basically where uh, HMB and ATP were combined. Very and cool. uh, basically showed that the combination of the two actually is, is shows greater benefits than the individual ingredients. Uh, for the recovery with the, with the surgery study, were they just taking PKTP first thing in the morning before their breakfast? I uh, don't know perfectly the details anymore, but basically okay. we're taking it before surgery and then I think during the recovery period too. Interesting. Okay. All right. That, it, Good stuff to know. The timing like, of it is it, interesting. Yeah. There's so much knowledge. That's why I like having people like yourself on the podcast because you, you have a lot of information that just people just don't know. <laughs> like and it's it's sitting there right out there. We just like regular mere mortals can't read every single study out there. But that that seems like a very um useful data point to know. Like before surgery, this is not a terrible idea to take. Huh. So looking at the whole process together, we talked about creatine, we talked about PKTP, we've talked a little bit about some other stuff like beta alanine. If if you're talking to an athlete, you know, if an athlete comes to you, Ralph, and they, they, they want to increase their performance as much as possible in this realm of nutritional supplements, is how would you put these ingredients together? Uh, is there Are there any other accessory ingredients to PKTP that are involved in this process that you would also recommend alongside it? The number one ingredient for sports is and always will be protein. So therefore, when I'm working out, I basically do this to try to increase muscle mass. And therefore, as a consequence, I see greater strength and power. I need the building blocks. And building blocks are amino acids. So therefore, I always have to supplement uh, an athlete with protein. So if they have a limited budget, then protein should definitely be on their list. And then, then to me, basically, it's ATP because ATP is really crucial having those acute effects. Uh, whenever I work with athletes, uh, I have issues in basically making them take something over and over and over again. It takes weeks and weeks and weeks for them to actually see something. But if I can basically give them something where you see an acute effect, where they feel something, where they feel the effect, or they just feel better and they can actually do more repetitions, they can 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 lift heavier and still feel good the next day. That's basically where I get them that they can see the benefits of the ingredient. And then I can see faster training adaptations, faster than, than with other ingredients. So therefore, yeah, protein is definitely always a good thing to have in your body. And then the ATP, I think, is a great molecule. Great. It's simple. You know, I think a lot of people are looking for these stacks of all of these different ingredients and it, it ends up being quite simple for most athletes. Definitely. They're, they're like a handful of really key ingredients that, that athletes should use. And then depending on, on your available budget uh, and, and obviously and basically what you get out of it, because every individual response is different when we're looking at studies and you, you basically report means. So therefore overall, we had like 40 people in the study and overall they increased an average of this or that. But if you're then looking at the individual responses, and we lately try to always publish individual responses too in, in graphs so people can see that, you, you basically see like 60 to 70 to 80% of, of people improving and some don't. So therefore, there's always this individuality that you have there. So you got to go out, try the ingredients for yourself and see basically if you, if you get the benefit. How uh, So well, we talked about the, the ones that you mentioned with the, the progressive overload with the per periodized uh, training. It's really interesting to me because a lot of these studies, they're not as controlled um were you controlling their diet their recovery other aspects because you can push these guys in the gym and I, and I definitely think that having someone on a legitimate periodized program will help them progress no matter what but what other factors were you controlling as well to make sure that this was a controlled study we always control diet and mainly nitrogen intake and the, the main reason for that again because we want them to make muscle so you got to make sure that they have enough protein in their diet so that we will control that. We control totally total calorie intake because calories obviously drive muscle protein synthesis too. I could actually 
fatten the person up and make him really muscular, but then you're going to be a little too big in, in other areas. So we got to always control calories. And, and one of the biggest thing that basically controls the study and gives you good data is actually we have them work out in front of us. So they actually have to come into the gym every day and that we try to actually have them come as groups. So basically create a feeling where several subjects go through a training protocol. They go through it together. They suffer together. They see the success together. And that makes a big difference. And also when they actually, when you have them work out three, four times actually in your gym during the week, you have them actually take the supplements in front of you. So they come in, take the supplements, and then they do the workouts. That gives us a greater control because we all know humans can be funny sometimes and they tell you they took the supplement, but they didn't. Uh, so having them actually come in and actually do that in front of you always gives you a great feeling of confidence that, that what you do really works the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, not to discount any of the supplements studied, but uh, just having them train together and having that, that camaraderie and the, 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 that feeling of that, I think that drives people to progress on its own. Like having proper training in a group setting, I think is, is like you said, sharing their triumphs together. I think that's really powerful on its own. We don't see a lot of studies where, I mean, unfortunately, where this is kind of pushed. It's really incredible. Yeah, that's what I think is impressive here is we have like a dozen studies and I know you weren't involved with all of them. There's like a dozen studies in this ingredient. And no one talks about that that much. So that's why I'm kind of like having fun going through all these different things. In that specific setting, um, you have a double-blinded placebo-controlled setup most likely. So you're giving each person their their product, their training together. The people training together, one may be placebo and one may be an active, uh, an active user, right? Yeah, so basically they either take SIBO or the active. But since we designed a training program, they still see significant increases in right. their performance. So in, in the specific 12-week study, the, the people in the control group on average gain four pounds of muscle, lean, lean body mass. So that, yeah. they see the benefits. So therefore, That's a solid training good. program. Like So it's it's tough to beat that even more with an active, with a dietary supplement. So that's what's impressive here. And one of the biggest things that we love for them to work out together is it significantly reduces dropouts because it's hard for a person to stick to a training program for longer periods of time. Usually six weeks is the sweet spot for human beings. Eight weeks becomes challenging. Even longer becomes more challenging. But going through that together, they're basically, hey, you got to be there the next day. They basically motivate each other to show up and actually really pull through. So therefore, dropouts, basically working out together is, is one, one magic uh, aspect of that. Had these subjects already been training in like a similar intensity? Like, or, you know, were they, were they used to this type of training? Yes. Yes. They basically were, were, had to have at least uh, a couple of years of resistance training uh, experience to do that. Good. Good. Th that, I mean, that answers all of, all of my questions. I got a, yeah. a lot out of this for PKTP, Mike. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I want people to realize this, just go, there's like this one paragraph, I'll just block quote in the show notes for this about that just cites like all the different stuff in, in, in the review where you could just go to each study that will, uh, will cite. And it's, it's impressive. And I'm like surprised that just not, not as many people talk about it. It's not in as many pump supplements as I think there should be. So that's it. Now I'm going to go a bit off the res reservation. Just ask you, um, or have you have you dug into any of the uh, NAD precursors at all? I actually have not. Okay, because yeah, one thing I'm I, so I'm I'm deep in the, the the whole NMN discussion and everything, and that's not you know this isn't that podcast for that. But one thing, if you start looking at some of the pathways, is that some of these NAD precursors, uh, such as nicotinic acid, um, 
NR, for instance, they utilize, they, they require additional ATP molecules in order to get to NAD. And some of these pathways require multiple ATP molecules, whereas like taking NMN requires just one ATP molecule. And I'm wondering, like, if I am taking, um, for instance, I'm looking at this path right now. If I'm taking nicotinic acid, like the, the flush niacin, in order to try to drive NAD synthesis, I'm going to be spending two ATP molecules every for every NAD that I need to create. And it seems like that's costly. And so I was just wondering if you've dug into that because it seems like I don't want to be wasting too much NA, too much ATP. I, I prefer my body to be using ATP for like performance and for other things if I don't um, if I don't have to. And that's kind of where I was going. It's like ATP is something we don't really want to waste necessarily. Are we like, we'd like the easiest way of conserving it. It seems like, is that, would that be kind of a, a true statement without knowing those pathways? Uh, yes, I, I think, I think that's fair. Obviously the, whenever we look at the right. human body, the human body usually only spends energy on things that are extremely important, usually important okay. to survival. Uh, performing better as an athlete is not necessarily a survival instinct that the human body has. So therefore we're at, <laughs> Therefore, we, we, it's it's usually not not performance optimized. There's also, if you're looking at performance, then the human body should have way more ATP than it has. So, so actually, it make our life much easier to to actually handle all of that. But yes, mm -hmm. I think in, in, I think that that's the one rule actually I learned in my studies uh, as a student back then. Is that always the one thing you keep in mind is the human body is lazy. It's not going to spend any energy on something that it doesn't really need for sure. Awesome. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, in my opinion, yeah. Obviously, we're not um, we're not getting hunted by saber toothed tigers and stuff like that anymore. But I think like the performance, we sometimes need to mimic that in the real world, um, or in in this world right here is like the the performance is baked into our bodies because we had to use we used to need to perform in order to survive. Now you know we we kind of perform to stay healthy or we try to perform at our best to be competitive or just for something to do. But um, but I, I hear what you're saying, and I love that quote: "The, the human body is lazy." Um, <laughs> but I don't have anything. I don't have what was. That? You should have enough energy to flee. That's basically what it is. That's why you can run for nine seconds. If you haven't outrun your tiger that is chasing you down after nine seconds, you're doomed anyhow. So therefore, you can. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and that's why we supplement with PKTP. <laughs> better hey you don't need to fully outrun the tiger or whatever you just need to outrun the guy next to you <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and, he, and he forgot to take his pktp this morning <laughs> there we go <laughs> very awesome. cool well yeah do you have anything else you want to add or any um you, you mentioned a couple studies that might be coming up we'd love to, to hear about them even drop in an email we could update the show notes here on uh on the price ball blog or whatever do you have anything else to add or anything else you're excited about uh about atp or otherwise i know that you uh you talked to like our good friend sean wells who is often on uh this podcast as well so if, if you want to add anything now's now's a good time otherwise we can we can sign off and uh we'll get this posted up and, and we'll cite all those studies we're kind of digging into uh, I think just what I always try to do at the end of the year too is basically look back and try to find the one highlight actually of all the studies that we've been doing. And there's one thing because we talked about how the human body being lazy and not spending energy on things that you really don't need. And and one of the things that that I found actually amazing is that, that we did a study on a dipeptide called dilucine. So it's a leucine leucine dipeptide, and we actually had to develop an analytical method to be able to detect that in blood. Because the way we analyze things, we just chop everything down to the individual amino acids and then basically analyze them. So no one really looks at dipeptide contents in plasma. 
when we did the, the study on, on dilucine and compared to dilucine, we found intact dilucine in, in the blood from actually consuming dilucine. But I think the really unique nugget in that study was that we actually found dilucine in the group that supplemented leucine. So that's an example of the human body spending actually energy and making a dipeptide out of leucine that you supplement. And obviously that's, that's I think, was a very unique finding. And the reason for that, because no one ever looks at those things because we didn't have the, the methods to look at that. But I think that was a really unique finding from that point of view that we have to also dig a little more into it and try to get a better understanding of, of, of all the dye and tripeptides that we actually have in our human body and what they specifically do. And again, if the human body makes one of them out of individual amino acids, it has to have a very unique specific function in the body. Okay. Um, so do you know what happened? That's interesting. So the body goes out of its way to make dilucine, even from just taking standard leucine. Um, do you know what happens after that? What is it doing with the dilucine? We basically, in the study that we did was uh, looking at, at muscle protein synthesis, and we used either dilucine and, and, or leucine, and we found a 60% greater increase in muscle protein synthesis with dilucine compared to leucine. So it uh, basically does that to a way greater and better extent. And, and the whole reason for that is that the human body has di and tripeptide transporters that actually absorb those more efficiently and faster than individual amino acids. So it could have been uh, a play in kinetics. Dilucine on its own has actually uh, properties that activate muscle protein synthesis. So it could be just that you have some dilucine in addition to leucine in your system. So therefore, we know that dilucine is, is better than leucine. And leucine so far has been the best molecule to actually do this from a nutritional point of view. So that that, that basically is potential purpose of, of why the human body potentially also makes dilucine out of it. Awesome. So in 2023, are we going to be able to try this? Like, Do you have a, a timeline at all? Or is that to be determined there should be products out there with the ingredient in next year for sure and awesome. right now we're basically wrapping up a training study so we muscle protein synthesis is acutely so we'll give it one time and you basically see what happens we want to make sure that actually that also translate in long-term benefits and therefore we did an eight-week training study which hopefully will wrap up in the first quarter and uh, then basically we can again compare directly leucine and dilucine and actually see if that with training actually makes a difference what we saw acutely Okay, that's one we'll, yeah, our audience would definitely want to want to hear about. Yeah, seriously. Excellent. Well, thanks for the the sneak peek. I think we're gonna we're gonna have to be talking to you soon. And uh, yeah, anytime you you have anything published, shoot it over. We'll update the show notes here. And if it's if it's something epic in the sports nutrition world, like it sounds like this dilucine may be, um, and that's the that's the actual name of the molecule. I'm assuming it's not also a trademarked ingredient name or anything like oh. that. But no. okay, so dilucine the molecule. Yeah, whenever anything comes out with that, we will probably want to have you on and uh, and explain a little bit more of what you've learned from your study. Yeah, sounds good, great, love to. Awesome. Excellent. Thank well, you. Well, so thank much you so much for your time. We appreciate it. We uh, hope you have a happy new year, and everyone listening, happy new year as well. Thanks so much.